Please join me in prayer now. Father, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is the bread of heaven. Amen. An Old Testament reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, the word of the Lord. Now, Moses was keeping flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And we continue in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to them, and he said to him, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Got a quiz for you. We've got some slides. Let's get that first slide. Can we get that slide? What does that mean? It means it's risky to drive over 60 miles per hour. We got another one, the second one. What does that mean? You don't even have to see it. It could say aret or, or something else on it, and you'd still know just from the shape, just from the color, that you're supposed to stop. What about the next one? Ooh, that's also a sign, and it also means stop. What about the next one? Go. What about the next one? Go faster, right? <laughs> what about the next one? Do not enter. Unless you're near a cemetery, it could mean do not inter, but I don't think that's the case. I think that would be spelled differently. Thank you. That's good. You know, there's, there's an important thing about signs. You know, St. Augustine talked about how even words themselves are signs because a word does not, is not actually the thing that the word represents. It's, it's a sign, and we live by signs. We, we live, eat, breathe, sleep, and inhale signs. They're all around us where one thing represents something else. And, and in Jesus' Uh, miracles is recounted in the gospel according to John. He, John always refers to them not as Jesus' miracles, but as Jesus' what? Jesus' signs. Right. Because they're there to tell us something about Jesus, something about who he is and what he has come 
to do. There's one miracle sign that Jesus performed in all four Gospels. He performed it as a miracle in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and as a sign in John. Uh, but, but there's the same thing, you know, and it's, it's the feeding of the 5,000. It says actually feeding of 5,000 men. So if there were women and children involved, it's actually 5,000, potentially 5,000 families. It's a lot of people. And Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all recount this, this amazing deed that Jesus did. And yet only one gospel goes on to explain exactly what its significance was. It's John who zeroes in in these I am sayings on the significance of these signs. And so we're going to read the account of both the event itself and Jesus' discussion of it afterwards. And we're going to focus for the sermon on the discussion. Um, For the record, should you ever hear Tim Keller preach on this passage, I have given him permission to use as much of my material as he wants. Uh, if there's a similarity, uh, you know, sometimes you just hear something and you're like, that's the outline I need to use. And so, uh, so that's what's happening here. Uh, we're going to read John chapter 6. We're going to read the first 14 verses and then we're going to jump ahead to his discussion of the sign in verses 27 to 35. This is God's word through the Apostle John. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because uh, they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among us? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Uh, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Then jumping ahead to verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give so that we may see it and believe you? Worst question ever, right after he's fed 5,000 people with two loaves and some fishes. But they ask, what will you do? And Jesus says in verse 31, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, 
I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. This is God's gospel. What does Jesus say? What does the sign mean? He says three things. It's a very creative sermon outline. He's saying, I am the bread of life. And he's saying, I am the bread of life. And he's saying, I am the bread of life. First, I am the bread of life. What is bread? Bread in the first century was sustenance. Bread was strength. Bread was the meal that you ate three or four times a day. Often, your meal was just bread, maybe a little bit of honey or something on the side. Bread was the staple. If you were poor, it's the only thing you ate, except maybe locusts and other kinds of wild, wild creatures. Uh, and, and in this context, with bread being all about strength and sustenance and making you strong so that you can work, there is a contrast within the miracle where, where the apostles bring forth this little kid. You know, he's just like a little, little guy with his little sack, and inside he's got, you know, a, a couple Cheetos that somehow didn't make it onto his mouth, which is all orange. And they're like, well, you know, we got 5,000 men, we got some Cheetos, this little kid, kid representing weakness, representing frailty, representing being small and not having strength and not being able to sustain. You know, uh, bread was, it was the staple. If, if Jesus had... Had, had become incarnate in parts of the Far East, uh, he would have probably been the rice of life because rice is that staple dish without which you can't survive. Had Jesus become you know, incarnate in parts of Central America, he would have been you know, the beans and rice of life. Uh, had he been in Nicaragua, he would have been the gallo pinto of life. Had he been in 18, you know, 20s Ireland, he would have been the potato of life because potato is the thing that is strength and is sustenance. And for the 95% of people who are poor laborers and farmers, it's what you eat every single meal. It's what makes you strong. And Jesus is here saying, I want to be your sustenance. I want to be the one you feast on. I want to be the one you come back to three or four times a day in order to get the strength you need. I want to be your nourishment, the one you rely on, the one thing you cannot go through life without, the one thing you will not try to survive life without. I want to be your sustenance. He's saying, I am the bread of life. Uh, to a Jewish audience, you know, the a miracle involving miraculous bread appearing would, of course, logically bring to mind the historical event from the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt, slavery, when they were on their way to the promised land for those 50 years through 
through the wilderness of the Sinai. It was God that every day gave them bread from heaven, gave them manna. It was probably some kind of fungus. We're not really sure. But every morning it had grown back. And if they, they could take it and take just enough for one day because God was training his people to trust him. I'm not giving you a week's worth of groceries, God is saying. I'm not giving you three days' worth of groceries. I am giving you one day of groceries, and tomorrow you're going to starve unless I show up miraculously and give you one more day of groceries. And he did that for 50 years to train us to believe him, to train us to trust him. And Jesus has just done this miraculous thing with bread and fish and they don't fixate on the fish they fixate on the bread because it brings to mind the manna in the wilderness so what does it mean to feast upon jesus it means trusting him today for today's stuff and knowing that he will show up tomorrow and you can trust him tomorrow because he will still be the bread of life tomorrow he will still be able to take care of you tomorrow he will still show up if you are white knuckling it just barely getting by and you think i can't make it one more day jesus is saying you don't need to make it what well, you only need to make it this one day because i'll show up tomorrow and get you through tomorrow trust me i am the bread of life are you depending on him are you processing your anxieties and your worries with jesus uh, you know, what are the ways that you're opening up pathways for him to speak into your life? Um, I remember a number of years ago, I had gone through a spiritual drought where, you know, I didn't know what was true. Cognitively, I believed in Christianity, but I was just at a point where my soul was so parched and so distant and God seemed so foreign to me. And, and I remember getting to a point where I just decided you know, I mean, I was studying the Bible all the time, but I decided I was going to wake up every morning and read one chapter in my Bible. Just one. I wasn't going to push it. I wasn't going to say, I'm going to read through the entire Bible in a month. No, just one, one chapter. Just sit with it open and look at it and ask God to do something. And, and I didn't want to start in Genesis because my logic is that Leviticus and Deuteronomy were way too close. They were right around the corner, and I didn't know if I could survive that. So I, I started with Matthew and went straight through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, through the epistles, straight through Revelation. And what God did in my life, um, you know, the other thing as I was going through this is God brought me through a season of just incredible suffering where my health was falling apart. Um, I, at that point, was not producing insulin, did not know I wasn't producing insulin when I ate. I wasn't producing digestive enzymes, so none of the food I was eating was breaking down. Breaking down. I had diverticulitis twice. I had a colonoscopy that went as bad as it can go. I had massive infections. I had lost my appetite, which I've still never regained after five years. But so much suffering and then conflict in the church and conflict with people around me and just all sorts of suffering. There were times when I was thinking, God, I cannot do this one more day. And yet, it was amazing as I would open up the Bible. Um, it stopped being just words on a page. It stopped being historical fact. It stopped being the male of people who died 2,000 years ago and became alive to me. And Jesus became so beautiful to me. I remember so many mornings just before I, I would not turn the phone on. Phone does not get to rule my day. Phone, stay there. You're still off. When I'm done with Jesus, I can talk to you. You know, it's just very, very clear. This is my priority. Um, it's honestly probably easier when you don't have small children. You just have cats, and, and I would admittedly feed them and then open my Bible. It made it much more productive. But um, 
you know, I remember weeping. You know, my, my Bible is stained with tears where those thin cellophane-like pages are permanently wrinkled. And they were tears of joy as I just saw the beauty of Jesus loving me and forgiving me and embracing me in the midst of turmoil. Uh, I fell in love with Jesus all over again. And friends, I want you for that because I'm just a guy who saw a field with a buried treasure in it. And I sold everything I had to get the field. And, and this was awakening me to how beautiful the treasure is and how much joy I have if I have nothing else in this life. Jesus is that treasure. Friends, are you feeding on him as the bread of life? Are you looking to him for sustenance and for strength? It's about more than having your doctrine right. It's about more than obeying his commandments. It's about a, a relationship in which you're continually in our weakness like that little boy and like those people who had no food looking outside of ourselves to Jesus saying, Jesus, you're my life. Jesus, you are my bread. And that sets us up for the second point. We already see now that Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. But there's a particular kind of bread. He's saying, I am the bread of life. There are, are two different words that he could have used here. And he's saying, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. That's hyperbole. He's making a rhetorical overstatement. He's not saying, don't feed your children. Jesus will show up with, with, a, with a pizza. Uh, but he's making a rhetorical overstatement saying, don't focus on just getting through life. Don't focus on existing. Focus on thriving, coming alive and having abundant life in Jesus. There are two words I mentioned that he could have used for life here. Uh, Greek word bios and Greek word zoe. Bios speaks to physical existence. Zoe speaks more to a qualitative uh, aliveness. And, and bios is something that uh, belongs to everything on earth. It's where we get biology from, B-I-O-S. Uh, everything that's alive and not dead has bios. Uh, uh, Zoe, by contrast, is a quality thing. It's a flourishing, a thriving. It's like, it's like when I go to Nicaragua on vacation. I just booked uh, this flight. Uh, we got a photo here um, of the rental house. Um, it's a nice rental house. Um, when I'm along the southwest coast of Nicaragua, steeped in my infinity pool, which is bathtub warm, which is going over the edge of the cliff, just out of view, uh, and there are beautiful family of howler monkeys in the trees just above the pool, and the little baby howler monkeys are clinging on to their mama as they swing through the trees and look down on us and eat fruit. And, and I've got a bag of plantain chips that I'm kind of crunching on, and it's about 80 degrees, and there's, it's sunny, and there's a beautiful breeze, the trade winds that swoops over the entire country continually 15 miles per hour, cooling down that 80 so it feels more like 75. And we're thinking maybe at some point, you know, we'll walk down the hill to the private beach that's private, only about 10 people, five people at the beach, but it also has a bar. And uh, we'll walk down and maybe grab a drink or food. And then somebody asks me if, if I, you know, want another cocktail. And I turn around and I say, you know, this is really living. That is thriving. That is coming alive. That is not getting by, but that's that point. Thank you, that's good enough for that. I just booked tickets uh, for January when it gets dark and cold here. Well, actually, it starts getting dark today, uh, just so you know. Um, really living, 
having a quality of life that makes you alive. You know, when Jesus speaks of eternal life, He's not saying eternal bios. He's not saying eternal existing. Uh, you know, Keller talks about eternal existing. I want you to think about that. All of your insecurities and all of your self-doubts and all of your frustrations and all of that emptiness, all of that, just imagine that going on forever. The Bible has a term for that. Hell. Jesus is not talking about eternal existing. He's talking about eternal thriving. Eternal flourishing. Uh, means all of the meaning and all of the joy and all of the energy and all of the fulfillment and all of the satisfaction of life unto eternity. It's eternal life that begins here and now, in verse 35, when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, He says, He who comes to Me will never go hungry. He who believes in Me will never be thirsty. That's not just in the future. That's the blessings of the coming age breaking in for you who believe in Jesus. If you trust Him to be your Savior, that blessing will break in even in the midst of hardship and suffering into this life. It's like, it's like when you go to the mall and uh, you're absolutely not hungry. You had lunch. You're just fine. You turn the corner and you get that big waft of cinnamon and butter and sugar. And you know what you're smelling. And you, at that point, don't really have you know, the Cinnabon roll in your hand. You're not actually eating it. But you are already experiencing it at that point. And you are wanting more. And that's what eternal life is like in this age as we're beginning to experience something of the blessing of forgiveness, our shame covered, reconciliation with God, not having to prove ourselves anymore. And, and anything else, Jesus says, that you trust in, to bring you that kind of life, that kind of thriving, he says it's going to spoil. He says, don't waste your life working for food that spoils, but rather that which endures to eternal life. There are all sorts of ways that can we, we can work for food that spoils. All sorts of things we can look to to make us thrive, thinking that that's the thing that will make me really come alive because we're all trying to shift from existing to thriving, from getting by to coming alive. That's what we're all looking for. We look for it in everything. It could be in our career or in a relationship or in a, a vision of a family that we think will make us come alive or possessions like a home or a car on the more materialistic sense or intellectually if I could just get published in the right journal or by the right publisher. Uh, these are good things. These are gifts of God. These are things for which you should give thanks and yet oftentimes we find ourselves trusting in them and looking to them to do too much to do more than they can possibly do there's not a relationship on this earth that can make you truly come alive long term it has a shelf life eventually everything spoils jesus says everything eventually becomes hard it becomes difficult it doesn't satisfy the way you thought it would the hopes and the dreams are, 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 are only partially fulfilled in this life. This life is a life of fulfillment, of, of, of unfulfillment. It's a life of, of disappointment. And yet in that disappointment, grace and glory break in. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to look to the gifts I give you thinking that they're going to make you come alive. I want you to embrace me and let me embrace you because I am the bread of life. And this brings it all down to the heart level. Where are you with Jesus? 
Who is he to you? Is he your life giver? I cannot answer that question for you. No one else can turn to Jesus for you. Just showing up doesn't get you tight with Jesus. Only you can say, Jesus, I need you. I love you. You are my Savior. I mean, is he your best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, his presence, your light? You know, we think about religion and we think it's about saying a prayer and making a decision and accepting certain doctrines. And yet, uh, you know, what that looks like. Jesus came to earth. Check. I believe that. Jesus died for me. Check. I believe that. God is in control. Check. I believe that. And yet, what's missing? Try that with a marriage. Met a girl. Check. She was single. Check. She was available. Check. She's attractive. Check. What's missing? Do you love her? Is there anything going on at the heart level? Does she create any delight or joy in you? Are you drawn to her to serve her and to take care of her the rest of your life? Do you love Jesus? Do you love your Father in heaven? Once you're converted, yes, you're still going to struggle with sin every day of your life, but you, you begin to love him. You begin to want to serve him. He begins to become your life. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Feast on me every day. He's saying, I am the bread of life because I want to make you come alive with the joy of salvation. And finally, he is saying, I am the bread of life. See, Jesus didn't come to bring us bread, but rather to be the bread. And this is incredibly unique among the religions of the world. Jesus didn't come to, to show the way, but to be the way. This is, it's unique among religions. Every religion tells you that there are certain things that if you just believe, certain rituals if you do, certain tasks if you cross off, then God will bless you, or you'll have enlightenment, or you'll get your harmonica converged, or whatever. But, but you have these, these blessings through what you do. You've got, you know, um, I love Muslims. I have great respect for Islam and, and for Muslims. But you've got five pillars in Islam. And, uh, and it sounds sort of like certain versions of Christianity that are out there. You practice your confession of faith in God. You practice your daily prayers. You fast. You give to charity. You go on a pilgrimage. And then you've got the eightfold path of Buddhism. You practice the right view. You take the right resolve. You practice the right speech. You obey the right conduct. You live the right livelihood. You do the right effort. You have the right mindfulness. You exert out the the right kind of meditation. And then you will have enlightenment. You've got the four noble truths. Every religion has this. And yet then you've got Jesus who is weird. He comes to us. He does something that's so completely different from the human religious impulse. He says, I did not come to be the teacher to point the way. I came as the way to which the teachers point. He doesn't say, I came to bring you bread. He says, I came, I am the bread. And this means that this whole thing is not really about our human efforts. It's not really about what we do for God to present a righteous life to him so that he will bless us because I don't have a righteous life and I know you don't either. What we have is a mixed bag of brokenness, glory and shame all together. Uh, The image of God and yet my own sin that's always there. And Jesus is presenting a salvation which is all by grace. It's all his work. He's saying, I've already done it for you. I've done everything necessary to accomplish your salvation. He says, it's freely given to those who believe. They say, what do I have to do? He says, believe me, I'm the bread. 
It's all grace. It's like Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Salvation is a person. It's like the apostles say in in the book of Acts, salvation is found in no one else, in no person, for there's no other name given to us by which we must be saved. That's why even in our membership vows that we just heard a group of believers profess, uh, it speaks not of salvation in the gospel, but of Jesus, receiving Jesus who is offered to us in the gospel because it's the person, not the plan. Uh, What does it mean to believe Jesus? What does it mean to believe the bread? At the front end, I think it means trusting him to be your savior. That means saying, Lord Jesus, I really need saving. I am broken. I am damaged goods. I need your help. And, And yet beyond that, Uh, It means going every day and entrusting our lives to him. Jesus, I need you to deal with this situation. I cannot fix myself. Uh, It means in prayer, you know, processing your anxiety every day with Jesus. You do it internally already, or you pick up the phone and you call somebody and process your anxiety, or you you hire an expensive friend at $120 an hour to process your anxiety, and I'm not criticizing that. I think everybody needs one at some point. And yet, uh, what Jesus is saying, I want to be your bread. I want you to come to me for sustenance. That means when you are freaking out and filled with anxiety and you don't know what to do, you're going to Jesus and you're saying, Jesus, here's the situation. This is difficult, Lord. It's awkward. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to navigate this. I can't fix it. But Jesus, I pray you take this situation and you guide it to your glory and to my good. He he invites us to talk with boldness. Jesus, whatever you want, You're the boss, you're my Lord, but here's what I'm anxious about, Lord. Here's why I'm anxious about it. And I want you to take it and accomplish your will in it, Lord, because here's what could go wrong over here. Here's who could be mad at me over here. Here's all the stuff that I can't control, Lord. It's, I, I am your child, Lord. You're the one who chose to save me. I didn't get a vote in that election. You had mercy on me. You claimed me as your own. You died for me on the cross and you're promising me glory and you're going to have to take care of me, Lord. You're going to have to take care of my family and bring glory, whatever you want, however you want. Your will be done, Lord, but it's your job. That's praying. That's feasting on Jesus as your bread. That's funneling your anxieties into relationship with him because Jesus is the one who came and he said, I am the bread, invoking the words God spoke to Moses, the name of the Lord, I am. He could have said it differently. He said it that way. I am the bread, the bread that came to be broken for you so that you wouldn't have to be broken instead. Friends, that's Jesus. He says, I'm the bread of life. There's a story I like to tell. Festo Cavendry, we got a picture of him, Festo, um, wrote a book, Revolutionary Love, uh, back in the 1970s. He was the Anglican Bishop of East Africa. And uh, I want to read a little bit from his own story of, of having come to faith in the midst of the East African uh, revival in uh, Festo says this. He says, what a shock when I reached home. My eagerness to arrive had made the dust and bumps of the long journey seem nothing. So I was definitely unprepared for the situation I found as the old lorry I was riding in pulled into Runkongiri, my hometown in western Uganda. It was 1939. 
I was 19 years old, coming home with the ink barely dry on my teacher's certificate. I had been given my first teaching position in the very boys' school I myself had attended, and that pleased me. At least it would start, and I would, I would have money in my pocket. The first ugly surprise came when the truck rounded the marketplace. A crowd had gathered around some people who were singing church songs right out in public. Imagine hearing this floating over the fruits and the vegetables down at the cross where my Savior died. To me, it was sheer fanaticism. The headmaster was waiting for me in town, which was gratifying. And some of my relatives were there also. My favorite niece threw her arms around me and cried, Uncle Festo, welcome home. I love Jesus now. Do you too? I grunted something and changed the subject. As an agnostic, I was quite offended. As the days passed, the situation proved worse than I had thought. People, both young and old, were caught up in a sort of religious frenzy, doing ridiculous things. Many of them had been good churchgoers for years, but this was all something quite new. They would talk about Jesus in all sorts of places, and you never knew where they might burst out in song. It was infectious. It was spreading like a disease. We enlightened people were angry. My mother's brother, the senior chief of our district, was appropriately tough against such things. He was a good chief, selected by the British government as the most progressive sons of the sons of the former king, my grandfather. And now my uncle said, this new kind of religion is dangerous. It invades your privacy. You have nothing left. There were other unsettling aspects of it for the chief to consider. Those women who were saved no longer covered their faces before men. And they spoke out in public as if they were set free from the ancient traditions. Even worse, the customary distinction between our tribe and the local Iru tribe was ignored by these extremists. They actually ate meals together, breaking the food taboos of hundreds of years. And in many other ways, they ignored the feelings of the revered ancestors, thereby bringing the danger of calamity on the whole land. My uncle, the chief, felt he had to take action. So he had some of his retainers uh, go up and beat some of those who spoke of being saved. And some of them were severely thrashed. Beating didn't change him, though. Sometimes the results were the reverse of what my uncle intended. A court official would beat up a man because he talked about Jesus publicly. But when the beater went home, he couldn't sleep. By morning, he was weeping and went off to join the fanatics. Exasperated, my uncle changed his order. Do not beat them. That is dangerous. You might become like them. I was having difficulties of my own. The school where I taught was a mission school, and I was expected to attend the local church. And that wouldn't have been hard, except that nearly everyone who was asked to speak or preach was one of the fanatics. What they said was always dangerously personal. We were constantly bombarded with talk about the cross. It was oppressive. Actually, I knew what it was to be an angry young man who was tired and lonely and finding life increasingly unmanageable and confusing. I was running as far away as I could from this Jesus they talked about, determined never to surrender to him or to anyone except myself. I was the kind of agnostic who's not interested in trying to prove whether or not there's a God. I ignored God and eventually said he wasn't there. I wanted to be free. Sitting with my uncle, the chief, I could thoroughly appreciate his dilemma, but neither of us could say that these people were total frauds. Take the matter of cattle. We were a cattle people, 
to my tribe. Cows were what made life worth living. By the time I was three, I knew the name of every one of my father's 120 cows, bulls, and calves. Some men I knew thought more of their cattle than of their children. So there were many things that happened that were incredible. For instance, one day the chief was holding court. And his elders were listening to his wisdom when a man arrived who was well known to be a pagan and very wealthy in cattle. His servants had eight very fine cows that they were driving along and all of the elders turned to look at them appreciatively. The cattle baron greeted everyone and then said, Your honor, I have come to return your cows. What do you mean? Sir, these cows are yours. I have brought them back to you. What do you mean they are mine? Well, sir, when I was looking after your cattle, I stole four of them and told you we'd been raided, and these four are now eight, so I brought them back to you. What do you mean? Who discovered this theft? Jesus did, sir. He has given me peace and told me to bring them back to you. There was dead silence and no laughter in that room. It was quite a shock. He says, my uncle could see that this man was rejoicing and all knew that what he had just done was absolutely impossible for a man of his tribe. I was hating God because the awareness of him embarrassed me continually. Though I pushed them back, my own sins were dark against me and threatening. Guilt pursued me like a hunting dog after its prey. I was a man ill at ease, young but fragmented inside. I was running headlong into self-destruction. At the age of 19, I weighed ending my own life. It wasn't because I didn't have health or work or friends to party with. That was a thing back in the 30s. It was because the things that I did lacked meaning. There was a hollowness inside and life seemed lonely and undependable. There was a haunting sense of uncertainty. Perhaps what happened then was because I had come to the end of hope and I was looking at suicide. One Sunday as I sat in a church service, I got up and went outside. I was absolutely in a rage. I spent the day drinking hard at my uncle's place and late that afternoon I was cycling home somewhat wobbly when I saw a good friend of mine riding his bicycle toward me on the same dusty road with a look on his face like he was flying through the sky. He was a teacher like me. I knew very well that he didn't ordinarily have that look on his face. I was surprised. My friend pulled up beside me and said breathlessly, Festo, three hours ago, Jesus became a living reality to me. I know my sins are forgiven. He had never before spoken with any enthusiasm about Jesus. Then, with complete sincerity, he said, Please, I want you to forgive me, friend. And he named three specific things for which he wanted my forgiveness related to some questionable things we'd done together. He said, I'm so sorry, Festo. I will no longer live like that. Jesus has given me something better. And off he went, whistling exuberantly, leaving me with my mouth open there on the road, If only he had stayed to let me argue, but he didn't. When I reached my room, I knelt by my bed, struggling for words to the one in whom I no longer believed. And finally I cried, God, if you happen to be there, as my friend says, I am miserable. If you can do anything for me, then please do it now. If I'm not too far gone, please help me. 
Then what happened in that room? Heaven opened, and in front of me was Jesus. He was there real and crucified for me. His broken body was hanging on the cross, and suddenly I knew it was my badness that had done this to the King of life, and it shook me. In tears, I thought I was going to hell. If he had said, go, I would not have complained. Somehow I thought this would be his duty as all the wretchedness of my life came out. But then I saw his eyes of infinite love which were looking into my own. Could it be that he who was clearly saying, this is how much I love you, saying it to me, this is how much I love you, Festo, I shook my head because I knew it couldn't be possible. I said, no, I am your enemy. I am rebellious against you. I have been hating your people. How can you love me like that? Even today, I do not know the answer to that question. There is no reason in me for his love. But that day I discovered myself clasped in my father's arms. I was tattered. I was afraid. I was like the younger son who went to a far country and came to the end of himself. Why should the father who is holy come running to hold me close to his heart? I was dirty and desperate and had said and done much against him. But that love was wholly unexpected, he writes. But it filled my room and I was convinced He is the only one who loves the unlovable. He is the only one who embraces the unembraceable. And in spite of what I was, I knew at that moment I was accepted by my God. I was a son of the Father. And that whatever Jesus did on the cross, He did for me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, You are indeed the One who sent the Lord Jesus to us that we might feast upon You the bread of life. And so we consecrate to You now the elements on this table. We consecrate to You this bread and this cup, Lord, that You would minister the Gospel to us that we might take of the bread that was broken for us and feast upon You, Jesus, as You meet with us in this meal. We pray in Your name. Amen.